about that. Man, I'm so happy. Welcome to the Chase Outdoors podcast, bringing you guys uh, another episode. We got Matt Woodward with Borderland Adventures with us today. I got Dylan Curry, Cole Kemp, Hank Towers, who are who is with us on episode one, and we're going to talk about a lot of different stuff today. But predominantly, if you want to become a guide or if you want to become an outfitter, we're going to try to cover what that entails. I guess the pros, the cons, the do's, the don'ts. Is it worth it? Are you going to make a million bucks like some of the guys think? Um, you know hunting with dylan when i first started when i first got affiliated with you and we first met each other i had a predetermined mindset of what i thought a guide was and what it was like um to be on an outfitted hunt i really have a, a new perspective having been part of some outfitted hunts or guided hunts however you want to say it and you know when we hunted with Josh Kirchner most recently, uh, when we were up with Pete on the Three Bear Weekend, I think he had that same revelation that I had a couple years ago where it's not, I think a lot of it comes down to the client that you have, but it's more or less like a one to maybe four people working for the better of one other person, yeah. right? So you got a guy and he's like, uh, he's maybe not familiar with the area, uh, he doesn't know where to start, and he's booking somebody to to get him close to that animal but what i'm getting at at least when i hunt with you guys it's just like a group of bros trying to get that person the client right the best animal possible so um hopefully after this episode i think hopefully people have kind of a have a new understanding of you know what a guy does and what it out what an outfitted hunt is like matt why don't you give us a little bit of back history on what got you into the game? What got you into guiding? How did you get started? And, uh, I mean, how long have you been doing it? Yeah, I've been doing it uh, just a little over 20 years. The very first couple hunts that I guided were back in the late 90s. And I did it kind of sporadically a little bit. Um, and then in the early 2000s, I kind of uh, started getting more active in it and then went full-time about uh, 11 years ago. So I've been doing it full-time for about, I guess, my uh, 12, 12 years now. 11 full seasons are behind us now what what areas are you guiding in is in what states what regions um mostly uh, we we operate some hunts down south of the border um uh dabble a little bit in arizona still and uh, and do some uh, work over in new mexico so uh, i've done kansas in the past i did about five years up in kansas uh, but sticking down here to the southwest now and um and we've cut back on our hunts a little bit but uh, uh running and you know, we're between about 50 and 60 hunters a year, so we're still a relatively small outfit compared to some of these big guys. Um, but uh, sticking out here in the southwest these days. Do you got a favorite favorite location, favorite area to guide in? Oh, probably got to be uh, hunting, hunting uh, whitetails down in Mexico in the you know, middle of January. Uh, or uh, or chasing elk, I don't know, one of those. I, I'm always throwing back and forth between chasing bugle and bulls and chasing those late-season whitetails. Then, uh, so... I think Hank and I are the two in the group that, that aren't licensed. Dylan, how long have you been guiding and kind of what got you into it? This is my fourth season now. Um, man, I my very first big game animal that I ever shot was a, a Sitka blacktail in Kodiak, Alaska when I was 11. 
and it was a, a guided hunt and that ruined me right there it's like you you can you can do this as a job <laughs> i can get paid uh, to help people do this yeah. that, i mean that kind of started the idea literally when i was 11 that that's what i wanted to do and when i graduated from u of a that that's immediately after graduation cole what about you what got you uh into guiding how long have you been doing it for yeah so this is um coming up on my second season as a guide but probably i think i've been with dylan almost since the start um so right around four years same time frame and i really just got into the game because i just wasn't happy at a desk job you know i got out of college um and you know in the previous podcast we talked about just our love for the outdoors and you know just wanted to give it a shot and see you know what kind of relationships i could build and people that i can get in contact with you know similar guys like you know matt woodward and and hunter smith just some really really solid Arizona guys that have a, you know, a, a just a tremendous amount of, of just wealth and knowledge in, in the Southwest and, and know how to grind it out and how to put on a, you know, a good hunt. And um, just like I said, been doing it for two years now and, and I'm hooked. I love it. Just sharing the opportunities with everyone and, and just, just being out in the woods. It's awesome. Appreciate that, man. Uh, Matt, I'm going to call on you since you're going to be, you're going to be our resident expert through this episode, if you will. How does one person become a guide? How do you start an outfitter? I mean, what does it take? Because you hear people a lot, you'll see it on hunting pages. It seems like a guy goes out and he gets his first deer and helps his buddy get a deer. All of a sudden, he's like, you know what? I got what it takes to, to guide a hunt. And you see right. it all the time. And then they'll ask, hey, you know, what do I got to do? So more or less, I'm asking you that question. I'm that guy. I just killed uh, one deer and helped my buddy get one. I think I'm going to become a guide. What do I got to do to start? Sure. Um, now, that's a... There's a huge, uh, huge range of answers there. That's, not that's to a real big My experience, but uh, um, it, it, you know, it's nothing like just going out and doing it. And so, the the, the really the only thing which you're going to end up doing eventually is getting on with an outfitter. Um, and whether you're starting help scout or uh, working as a spotter um, and getting out in the field with uh, in, in some guided hunt situations, working with an outfitter. And so. Uh, but you've got to build up uh, some experience in order to be, even be in a situation where, where you're qualified or capable of doing that and being out in the field with hunters and kind of leading the way and, and you know, whether it comes to, you know, from start to finish from the whole hunt perspective. And and so, uh, yeah, it's years of experience of taking those friends out. That, that's how I started. That's how all of us started, really, uh, was just taking your friends out and, and killing bucks and, and, you know, hunting every archery hunt and hunting every, every rifle season and bouncing around. Uh, and just helping your buddies and spending your own money and burning your own time, um, just building up those experiences and learning different parts of the state and things like that. So you've got something to offer an outfitter. Um, Elaborate. Let me cut you off, Matt. Elaborate on what that means is working with an outfitter. Like I I think that that's something that people don't understand. Like I think the misconception might be that once you get your guide license, like that's all you need, but explain that a little bit more, what that means working for an outfitter. Sure, that's a, that's a huge subject, especially in Arizona. A lot of states are, are pretty different than Arizona. Uh, but the way Arizona's set up, we need to, um, permits to operate on uh, different from different land use agencies, whether it's BLM, state, or National Forest Service. So to really be in the field at all, uh, if you're not going to be on private land, which in Arizona, private land hunting, as you guys all know, is very limited. There's not a whole lot of guys who are just really operating exclusively on private land, although there may be two or three guys in the state. But for the most part, you need to operate under permits. And, and those permits are uh, relatively difficult uh, to acquire. They're not available uh, in a lot of cases these days. Uh, they're not offering up new outfitter permits for, for certain areas. 
And so you can't really just go get a guide's license and then just uh, have someone call you up and say, I'm going to go book a 23 elk hunt uh, and a 6A uh, deer hunt and a unit 32 deer hunt. Uh, those require a string of three different forest service sure. permits. That uh, and that may not be available. It may not have been available for years. And so that's a common misconception uh, by guys, you know, going to go get a guide's license and going to go going to go guide some hunts. Oh, I'm only going to guide a few hunts. I'm just going to run a little side business and uh, pick up a couple hunts. And uh, there's just a whole lot more to it than that. And I think it's just a really common misconception. And what it has is a lot of guys, and dare I say the vast majority of guys operating in Arizona are not operating uh, above the table. Uh, you can call any forest service office and uh, ask which outfitters are permitted to operate in those forests and figure out who has permits and who doesn't uh, pretty readily, since that's pretty readily available. And uh, anyone hiring an outfitter ought to be concerned with that as well, making sure whoever you're hiring is available, is, is legal to work in that area. Sure. Getting into that a little bit, um, obviously there are credentials to do it. Cole, I, I'm going to call on you because you were the most recent one to do this. Um, what did you have to do to, to get your guide license and kind of become a guide? Yeah, so uh, Game and Fish, uh, it's, it's pretty much lined out. Um, on their website, if you just go to azgfd.gov, uh, you can type in their search bar, you know, guide license application, whatever. But essentially, there's um, an application process that you have to fill out, um, you know, ask for your name, number, address, hunting license number, all that stuff. And then you have to take uh, a test. And essentially, in that test, it goes over the, the commission rules um, and just asks you certain, you know, hunting pertain questions. And it differs from, like, if you want to be like a, a fishing outfitter or a fishing guide or a hunting guide or a, a hunt fish guide um, all those tests are different but um, pretty much you just have to to go through the the commission the commission rules and regulations and and just study them know them um, different laws take that test and then if you pass that test um, they pretty much grant you um, your your guide license with a, a $300 fee um, which you have to renew every year then um, as well as filling out you know your your annual guide report um, yeah, so you got to fill that all the information of everyone you hunted with. Yeah, and that's that's every year. Um, you have to do that regardless if you you hunted or not. So you got to be on top of it. And if you miss a year, got to go back and take the test again. So can't miss miss a year. Yeah. So I mean, more or less, got to have your your license, the credentials to work in the forest that you're being a part of, being a part of the outfitter, which uh, Matt just explained. It's a process, and I mean, more or less, I think we're concentrating on. The guidelines in Arizona. Uh, personally, Matt's probably the only one that will speak on out-of-state experience, but more or less, we're focusing on um, Arizona. Now, here, here's an interesting question, uh, Dylan or Matt. Let's let's go with Dylan. Transfer to Matt on this. Is there money in being a guide? And let's it's, let's look at the full picture on this, right? Because I think that's the perception of it. Is like, all right, you know, it, once you get the interest, you're a successful enough hunter where you're confident to where my abilities can help somebody else kill an animal. People don't realize the amount of scouting, the gas, the equipment. I think it right. might depend on the species, but it's, is there I, money in doing this? I mean, I is it worth it? the perception is because of the prices on most guided hunts that guides can, and outfitters can go out there and they're making a ton of money off of each client. But when you go break it down and what it costs to actually operate, you know, when you're looking at side-by-sides and trucks and trailers and tents and all your food for that amount of time for all your scouting stuff optics backup guns paying spotters all your permits license get a flat tire on the way out stuff 
tires that we burn through like nobody's business. Yeah. Um, yes, there's money in it, but the margins aren't very big. Right. And the prices of the hunt are reflective of the inputs going into them. Matt, you want to build on that a little bit? Sure. I'll answer the question as simple as I can with just a simple no. <laughs> um, if, if, uh, if you if you can run the, you can run the numbers on it uh, and we can talk about some of these numbers and, and Dylan can vouch for some of these numbers as well as i can only because uh he's actually worked for different some other different outfits and stuff as well and worked with some different guys so he's got, got some different experiences there but uh, just look at it this way most guys are making uh, dylan back me up 300 dollars a day yeah that's uh, pretty normal is that, is that a pretty standard rate these days yeah all right, so you're going to do a seven-day elk hunt. You're going to get paid for all seven days. It's $2,100, uh, $300 a day. Um, if you look at it like you're working 10 hours a day, that's that's 30 bucks an hour uh, for the time that you're working. How much time do you actually put into that elk hunt, Dylan? Uh, you're there for seven days. I mean, just, just your time there. Um, it, and, and then we can add in scouting and the other weekends and the fuel and stuff like that. The, the problem um, is you just looked at it as a 10-hour day. It's not. You're there for 24 well, no, hours. 24 hours. It's a 24-hour <laughs> day. I'm just breaking it down to, to compare it to some other guys' work day because uh, a lot of a lot of folks do, uh, but it, it doesn't. It's, you're working 24 hours a day, so we could break it down like that, and then you're making just a couple of dollars an hour, and then you can cut that in half because uh, you're you know looking at a, just a seven-day elk hunt. Uh, if, if you don't spend 14 days of your year involved in that elk hunt, um, for starters, you're not going to be successful. That that's two quick scouting trips and showing up two days early is all that is. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. That, that's hit. That's hitting the unit twice and showing up two days early for the hunt, and you're already at 14 days. So you cut that down to 150 a day, uh, right off the bat. Uh, and then the next week you're not working. There isn't an elk hunt be the week after. I guess. Um, oh, or the week after, or the week after. I guess I have uh, two natural yeah. follow-up questions. To your guys' sure. response that I'm assuming other people might be wondering. Mm-hmm. Is there? A, I'll ask the first one. Is there a specific species that is better? Uh, like, can you? Is there more profit in a specific species compared to others, or more or less the reflection of time and what it takes to actually do the hunt? Is great question. Um, yes and no. From a guide's perspective, uh, especially certainly in my case, uh, my guides are making the same thing whether they're chasing antelope or elk. Or, or bison, or, or coos deer, or javelina for that matter. Um, and so if they're working, that's that's what we're paying. Um, I've done some less uh, smaller less day, smaller days on on javelina hunt, of course, in the past. But uh, um, and so from a guide's perspective, no, it doesn't really relate to what you're hunting. Uh, from an outfit perspective, things like elk have a higher value than than coos deer, for example. And so. Um, it's an interesting conundrum, though, that uh, the outfitting business is in, uh, placing value on these animals, because uh, it doesn't require any more effort on my part to, product, to conduct a, a seven-day elk hunt than it is a seven-day deer hunt. Yeah, I mean, that, know, and that makes sense to me. Um, so here's, here's my question. I'm going to ask that, Dylan, this is geared towards you, it's geared towards Matt. If it's not extremely profitable, why do you guys do it? Because it's fun. That's probably that's, also that's, a pain, you know. I mean, is it just fun? And oh, that's what it, kind of, it can be a huge pain, extremely stressful, and and a whole bunch of other things, and constantly baking equipment, and there's a million things you could list as to why not to do it. But it's fun, man. It's fun to go help other people and help. They have a goal in mind, and to go out there and, and help somebody else be successful, it's it's addicting to go out there and do it. Same answer. You're hunting. What's better than that? <laughs> um, 
Well, I guess uh, like the reason I, why I, I, asked I the can't question, get enough tags for myself to satisfy my itch to go hunt, so I got to use other people's. And then, and then the reason why I asked the question, I mean, because obviously it's fun, obviously it's a good time, but if this like does the fun outweigh the stress, right? So obviously you guys have made the decision to where it, yes, it's stressful, yes, it's fun. I, what I'm hearing Dylan saying is like that fun and just the time and being out there, your purpose of being outdoors outweighs the stress and far, far the time. greater value or I wouldn't do it. And you get the mountain therapy in it, right? What about you, Matt? I mean, is it, is, like you said, kind of the same thing? You got anything you want to uh, carry on with No, that? absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it's love of being on the mountain. Um, and it's kind of one of those situations where you find yourself like, well, can I, can I pull it off? Can I, can I do it and still survive? Yeah. Um, Dylan and I uh, have talked about uh, talked about this in, in extensively in the past, and and uh, you, you add it all up. How many hunts a month can you guide? Is that is that two weeks out of the four, or or three? Is that forty five hundred dollars a month? Are you just in the fall? Um, what are you going to do in June, July? Uh, you know, all through the spring, um, are you going to guide turkey hunts and travel around and do other stuff? Um, most guys have got to do something else, and so if you can create a, a life situation that allows you to do it it's it's amazing it's an epic it's it's just an epic life of hunting for you know four five six months continuously um and so if you can create a situation in your life where you can do some other side job that that that, uh, allows you to work actively busy all summer long and make some money and stay afloat uh and then do this throughout the fall and winter uh and make you make some money uh but but when you break it all down you're not going to like your hourly wage but you are coming (laughs) home with money uh, you are coming home with money, and, and theoretically, when you're out on these hunts, you're not you're not spending a whole lot on yourself. Of course, you still have a home to maintain, a home in most cases, um, but for the most part, uh, at least you're not you know responsible for your own food and things like that, or, or fuel in most cases. Um, it, you made still, the comment that if you can put yourself in a good life situation, it, it makes it all you know really awesome and come together, right? But I feel like. The ideal life situation is to be single, have no family, and, <laughs> and, that's, that's and have the way no connections. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, you look at it from this perspective. I get I get this question weekly, right? I meet people all the time. So, what do you do for a living? So, I'm a hunting outfitter. I said, oh, really? What, do you, what does that entail? And I said, well, I'm, I'm gone from, uh, you know, mid-August uh, through February. Uh, I'm just gone. I show up for 24 hours at a time. I, I, I'm gone for two or three weeks. I rush into the house turn around and, and people are just blown away this oh well that's that's interesting must be fun being single and i'm like actually i've been married for 15 years i've got a 13 year old son <laughs> well it takes uh, that right so it, it takes the right support group right i mean i think that's does. part it, of it to huge, you know if you're going to do it full time you got to have the right support group i mean uh matt mentally what does it take for you man i mean uh to go a full year are you planning is are you planning out a full calendar year? I mean, mentally, is there a lot of added stress? Are you pretty, you got it dialed in by now? Or how, where well, are you at mentally? The first five years were, were rough, miserable. Um, we've got a little bit of a system down now, uh, and we've got a little bit of a repeat clientele. So my life has slowed down a little bit in the sense that uh, I don't have to go to sportsman's expos anymore and travel and have the added expense of flying up to Boise or Sacramento and doing an ISE show or something like that right. in the spring and going and spending a couple thousand dollars and travel. And hotels, uh, hoping to sell some hunts and things like that. So I've scaled my hunts back to what what people want to do, and I don't have a lot of extra hunts and stuff available. I've sold, you know, scaled it back to the hunts that actually sell and people want to do. And we have a lot of repeat business on, and uh, has 
changed my my life a little bit. So so yeah, I'm just scheduling and planning and uh, and scouting. I was out all day today. I just uh, scouted till about uh, three o'clock this afternoon. Just came off the mountain, uh, so hung a couple cameras today. Checked another one, and, uh, and so that's kind of life this time of year. Uh, it's, it's now it's equipment time. Over the next maybe six weeks or so, we're pulling out equipment and and uh, dusting off tents and things like that, and so getting ready. Getting ready for I fall. think that's a big misconception, though. Even even you saying that you're you know you're gone from August through February, that the rest of the time you have nothing to do. But it it's really a year round deal with planning yeah. and logistics and everything else. So let's let's segue this a little bit. This is a perfect time to do it. You're you're a guide. And maybe you don't have any clients yet. Prior to the season, what do you got to do to try to make sure you know your company is successful? I mean, what what type of homework, what type of preparation goes into making yourself successful? Dylan, let's start with you. Well, you're stating as as a guide, um, as a guide, you're probably not too worried about it right now you probably have something this time of year that's that's lined up that you're working for an outfitter um but are you looking like more that transition of getting away from working under somebody to or no i mean even like from your perspective i'm asking you from your perspective and where you're at now you have like in the calendar year you know okay august is going to be bear hunting uh september is going to be elk hunting october november deer hunting there's like a level of mental preparation that goes into that right so what do you have to do what i'm asking you is you personally whether honestly guide outfitter what do you have to do to make that season successful because it's not just randomly showing up in a unit well it could be if you know it really well i guess you know maybe you randomly show up but for example like the work me and you put in this year summertime for bears um you know if there was a booked client on a, a individual hunt, the time that we set the cameras and scouted, I mean, that's more or less what I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, no, is there anything beyond that that you guys do to, you know, try to better yourself or be more prepared? I have my areas that, that I'm going to hunt, my my units that I'm going to focus on. And regardless of if I have anybody planned that I'm going to be guiding that fall in those areas, we're still out there. And, and you were with me on it all all through the winter and spring and we're putting cameras out we're checking new locations scouting stuff planning in, in advance of even having a, a client or or contracts with uh, another outfitter or anything like we're out there doing homework preparing for whatever is upcoming anticipating that hopefully you're gonna have the work you're not always sure and sometimes it's a short time frame before you know who and when and what you're hunting right um, but me personally, I'm not trying to be spread out all across the state. Like we have four or five places that that's, those are the units that we're going to hunt and we're going to be focusing there regardless. Cause personally, I'm going to hunt them, those areas either way with myself, my friends, my family, I'm going to be out there and to get a, to get a client in the process of all of that is, is what I'm trying to do, but the planning is is year round for it, Matt. I'm going to ask you, what do you got to do to make sure you're successful, your team is successful? Because from your perspective, you have guys working under you, right? So I would imagine that there has to be a level of communication or a plan or a scouting plan. What are you guys doing to prepare yourself to be successful for the upcoming seasons? 
Exactly that. We're, we're scouting, we're scouting together, and and you guys scouting individually and kind of coordinating for that. Uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that doesn't that no one takes uh, into consideration really, and, and nobody's really getting paid for, right? <laughs> and that nobody's getting paid for, yeah. But things like vehicle preparation and equipment. When you show up in an outfit camp, um, and you're showing up to uh, in some cases a camper trailer, in some cases a couple thousand dollars in, in canvas tents, um, and, and you know, who knows how extravagant that camp is. But for the most part, our camps have got, you know, many, many thousands of dollars of gear. And we've got multiple setups because we're camped in multiple places at one time. Uh, everyone operating out of stacks of coolers and a full kitchen and things like that. And all that stuff's got to kind of be prepped, separated, divided up, and and, and dialed in preseason because uh, you don't want to show up to an elk camp and be lacking something like that. So, uh, you know, any, any piece of that, whatever the case may be, um, so there's a lot of that behind the scenes planning and preparation that goes into it. Uh, my house kind of looks like the the back of a Cabela's uh, for like uh, like six weeks of the year, where we're just like dividing things into piles, and, you know, stoves and organized and, chaos, right? It, organized chaos, exactly. You know, hauling loads of sleeping bags to be dry cleaned and things like that, and, and getting those prepped for the season. And because uh, we do a lot of that, like in Mexico, where we uh, haul a lot of those down there and changing the oil in four or five generations. Uh, well, I guess three of them these days uh, to call <laughs> generators around to uh, various places and things like that. So, uh, in addition to running cameras and scouting, like you know, so my plan is I, I pretty much try to scout half the day um, here locally, uh, at least a few different days a week, and I'm doing paperwork and uh, gear prep the other half of the day, and then about every other week at this point that I'm I'm remote somewhere. I'm out, I'm in New Mexico or, uh, here it starts to cool down a little bit. We'll start traveling to Mexico a little bit more, uh, hanging some cameras and things like that. So just a right. ton that goes into it. So you, you never want to look at it from like adding up the dollars and cents. And, um, the, you know, I think Dylan and I were having this conversation, Dylan, you may recall talking about a, a large elk outfit that runs almost a hundred elk hunts a year. Uh, with a couple of partners, uh, with a gross profit of you know up to almost a thousand dollars per hunter, and, and so uh, the annual net profit of that business with two partners was ninety thousand dollars a year. It's a big mega mega elk operation that two guys split uh, the forty five thousand dollars a year that they had to run their big diesel trucks on, and, uh, <laughs> and and travel around and and book ninety elk hunters. Um, you can see that the that, that no one's get no one's getting rich. There's you know there's only a few pl situations in the Western U.S. where guys are making big dollar amounts in the outfitting business. And there's, there's a handful of them. There really is, right? Um, but not very many. Well, it's not the norm by any means. Cole, no, you have something you want to Certainly bet? not. So you know, in, in my my perspective of it, I guess it's unique. I'm just I'm just a helper. Hank, just a helper. Um, but in my opinion, I mean, not that some, some guys do it solo, but it seems to be some of the larger outfits, some of the larger companies, it kind of takes a team. Hank, I'm going to try to get your perspective on this because you've helped on some guided hunts and you've been a part of different things. Have you done anything, um, as a helper or a spotter, you know, what kind of, what kind of information, how can you be helpful to a guide, to an outfitter on a hunt? Well, dude, I'm just out there having a good time with the rest of you. Right. Um, out there being an extra set of eyes, you, heck, I've got a tag you know i could be in that same unit too so yeah. rather obviously uh, you know you brought it up earlier it's just a big group of guys there's four five six of us out there with one guy in mind right like, get that person the biggest animal 
mean? or the best or whatever is most important to them. The right? Yeah, what what fits their criteria and what they're looking for? Find that first. Get him taken care of. The rest of it's all fun, man. Yeah. Well, I'm man. That's my role. I feel like like I'm like a spotter, Dylan. I swear, it brings me along just to make people laugh. Like my, <laughs> I'm, what I'm really good at, you know, when you finally get the animal down and we're taking pictures, cracking jokes. Like I feel like that's my job, right? So I feel like if you're getting, you want to get into this, you want to become a guide. Probably the best thing to do, and I don't know how the actual guides and outfitters feel about this. Man, volunteer to help somebody. Volunteer to be on a hunt. Volunteer to be out there to see what it's like before you invest your time and get into it. Cole, what's on your mind, man? Yeah, no, I mean, you hit that right on the head. You know, I, I think, like I said, my first two years of trying to, you know, dabble in this whole being a guide world um, was literally hitting Dylan up, hitting, you know, Matt, anyone up and just like, hey, um, can I come on this hunt? You know, not expecting to get paid. No, I, I wanted my, my sole purpose was to go um, experience, to learn, um, to just watch, listen, and see kind of how how they how they ran things. You know how they ran the ship, and um, it was it was one of those things where you know you kind of there's I, I don't want to say like a seniority thing to it or or um, I I I don't know, but I, what I'm trying to say is like if you put in your time as like a helper or you go out for me in my, in my case, it led to other doors opening to where I wasn't a helper. I was getting paid, but it wasn't because, you know, I, I met people. It was because you almost kind of had to like prove yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. like go out there, you know, show people this is, you know, okay, you know how to glass, you know what to look for. You can judge an animal, you know, what terrain to look for, you know how to process an animal once the animal's down, um, you know how to treat a client, you know how to cook, you know how to clean. Um, and that comes with experience and time out in the field actually doing hands-on stuff. There's a customer service aspect that's involved in it, right? I mean, a part of that is like, that's a big part of an outfitted hunt, a big part of guiding somebody is providing them customer service. I don't think people think of that. Little things like making sure that guy's favorite coffee's ready in the morning, that's the difference, man, because people come in with that expectation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those are all interesting perspectives. I got a question for you, Matt, because you've been in it the longest. New outfitters uh, seem to pop up every year. Uh, people are trying to separate themselves. People are trying to, you know, get in the industry. Why do so many guys fail at starting? Why do they fail when they actually be, come into the industry and try to make it happen? Why does that failure occur, occur in your opinion? It's a saturated market, and everyone wants to be the boss. So th- that's the bottom line. Um, there's there's too many outfits, and, and in a lot of cases, not enough guides. Uh, we'll have 20 outfits, and the outfitter is the guide for that outfitting business. <laughs> and everyone wants to be their own entity. Nobody, And so this happened, I don't know, sometime in the last 10 or 15 years um, where um, – and, and Legally, this is not how things should work, but it, it's kind of how it does. Everyone just went, I'm just going to go get a guide's license and, and start my own outfit because then, I'm, then I get to keep all $5,500 of the elk hunt instead of getting paid 2100 and the outfitter just runs off with the, right. the big profit, the big end of that. Um, and so, you know, you do that once or twice, and, and it, looks to, it looks to you without having to pay for the permits and advertising and, and uh, you know, acquiring clients in the first place it looks like the outfit is taking this large portion of money and so it makes a lot of sense for you to just go start your own outfitting business and take that on and so what you've got is three dozen outfitters 
you know, guiding in a small area uh, for a single species, um, fighting over, in some cases, uh, uh, not even that many potential clients. Um, you've got, you know, and so there's just, it's, a, it's, it's tough to get off the ground in that situation, um, especially if you don't have a long track record in that, in that area, because someone else, someone else already does have a long track record there. Hunters, hunters are bad enough in the field, like when they see another hunter. What are the, poli- mm-hmm. what are the politics like for a guide? Like, what are, you, what are the relationships when you see other guides? Like, let me, let me set up a scenario. Okay, sure. let's, let's say you were out elk hunting, and you're in the area, you, you've been scouting, you, you, you know, you guys are after maybe a specific animal. You guys run into another outfit with their client. You're there, you, you're a client, they're there, their client. Maybe you just crossing paths on a road, going to your spots. What's that relationship, good, bad? I mean, how do you guys, how so, does everybody treat each other? For, for me, historically, um, fantastic. I, I have no issues or bad relationships i'm not trying to actually rack my brain a little bit here i don't think i have any real serious enemies out there in the field um and so i've had nothing but great interactions with other guys in the field now i've heard all the horror stories as well right so um i've heard all of these all these negative interactions it's a very small world so uh, as soon as two guys run into each other and have a negative interaction uh that spreads like wildfire in no time um i've never had any of those issues i hardly run into anyone in the field uh, I read about everyone's problems and everyone running into each other and, and running into each other's trail cameras and things like that. And uh, the way that I do my business and operate and the places that I spend my time, uh, none of that is ever an issue. I, I made a conscious decision years ago uh, that I would rather shoot uh, 290 bulls in uh, low-profile units than deal with the drama of hunting nine. Uh, and I'd rather... Uh, chase whitetails down south and deal with the drama of uh, you know spending time on the strip and things like that. Right. That and so I just sense. simply avoided them. Uh, from a business perspective, I made a conscious decision years ago uh, to just avoid those high-profile areas. Uh, so that's never been our expertise. I, we're not a trophy outfitting business. We don't specialize in the, the, the biggest animals on the mountain. We never have and certainly have never claimed to. Um, so we're a little bit of a different, I'm, I'm a little bit of a conundrum in the outfitting business right. as well, a little bit of a different situation, uh, focused more on really high quality experiences. Right. Um, and things oh, that's like how it that. should be, so, in my opinion, at least. That's me how it and, should be. Me and Matt have had hours of conversation around a campfire about this type of stuff, and this is specifically why I have guided for Matt in the past, is his perspective of, we're, we're out there to looking for the biggest animal obviously whatever we're doing we're that's what we're trying to do but but not at all costs exactly not at all costs we're we're doing it because we want to give the people the right experience and and working with matt like he's on that same page the whole time i feel like when we go in the field we're we're on this we're playing out of the same playbook to go put on the best possible experience for a client and have the best end result Cole, you're chomping at the bit over there. You look like you got something you want to say. Yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> going back to talking like about the the whole, I guess you could say, guide versus guide battle. Matt, how do you feel about like outfitters and guides that sticker their trucks up with with their with their like company logos and all that stuff? Do you think that fuels the fire, or do you think it's no big deal? <laughs> yeah, guys can do whatever they want. I I don't do it personally. Um, I think it leads to other issues. I don't know, man. Um, Your website it, looks pretty uh, legit. I've seen the. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. It, it you know, stickered up trucks. Um, it I have your one vehicle. 
I have one, yeah, it gives you spots. I've got one vehicle that's got stickers on it. About once or twice a year, someone will send me a picture of my vehicle out in the woods. Hey, man, I saw you parked off the side of the such-and-such oh. <laughs> road. You know, that and you're like, yep, uh, yeah, just uh, forget you saw me out there. That's you know? funny. Um, and so that happens all the time. And so um, I always thought it was better to just kind of keep a low profile and not go out stickered up and, and draw attention to yourself. Um a lot of guys, and this is something I've never understood, uh, but a lot of guys just simply don't like outfitters and guides. They don't like folks making money off off public land and natural resources and things like that. I think that's absolutely true. And, in fact, I mean, that was what I was going to ask. I mean, I was going to kind of, that was my very next question is like, why do guides have such a bad rep in so many places? And part of that is, I think, is maybe bitterness like from just your fellow hunter right the guy that's just just drew his deer tag he feels a little bit more entitled like there's almost even a perception that when the guy comes out like they're doing air quotes here like ruining the area i've heard people say oh now that spot's oh, sure. no good because there's an outfitter in it like why do people have such a bad taste in their mouth about guides and outfitters bad apples have left a bad taste basically um you, there's there's horror stories we've all heard them uh, some of us grew up hearing outfitter horror stories about outfitters blocking roads and fist fights in Unit 9 and things like that. <laughs> uh, I can think of a dozen of these stories, uh, bad apples in, in every batch. And so um, a lot of folks think that that's just what outfitting is. Those are the stories that travel, right? Uh, especially with social quality, media, right? Especially with social yeah, media. Yeah, you just have a uh, quality hunt and kill a decent animal and the guy's thrilled and wants to come back next year and he goes on that doesn't that doesn't get any attention at all yeah, nobody hears um, about the good hunts <laughs> but if you have a yeah if you have a confrontation with another outfitter on top of a knoll out in the middle of the bo uh that's going to spread like wildfire right um and so uh, and that's happened to all i mean that's we've all seen those happen these guys pull up on top of a knob and there's another truck there and they're like hey this is my knob I, we were here last week so you know we're in here hunting and you know we've all we've all heard all those same stories so you know yeah i think most most notably you hear it a lot with uh guides that are hunting bears with dogs man like that that is an intense one i notice where you get the spot and stock guys on the hill you know and they're set up and maybe they're not that far from a road you know and you hear those hounds coming up and they know it's an outfitter that one right there seems to get the the blood going like i don't think that's ever a good conversation you got your spot and stock guy just happens to bump into the guy running his dogs to the same canyon that it generally doesn't go very well i don't think yeah um, and it's just more it's a lot more high profile type situation than say archery elk hunting where you're slipping through the junipers and you, and you come across another guy another hunter and you go oh hey sorry and you guys kind of split up and go your opposite <laughs> directions called them uh, in <laughs> com- compared to a dozen a dozen hounds barreling through a canyon so I, I get that for sure having done that in the past and uh, seen both sides of that had had hounds barrel right through uh stuff that we were getting ready to kill and and also been chasing the hounds i, I do see both sides of it and it's always been a little bit of a interesting situation in arizona i've always uh kind of been a proponent of having a second a, a separate season letting the houndsmen have have a, a weekend or two and uh, letting everyone else be out in the field bear hunting without it so i know we have spring and fall that's a rabbit um, hole in itself and i think we could probably spend an hour yeah, talking we could, about we could that. spend an hour talking about that stuff as well but yeah so um but yeah so that's a that's a tough situation and um I, i've always just done my best to avoid it and just gone the other way um, right. uh, no matter what so i run into folks all the time and I, I constantly find myself just turning around, going the other way. I've always, not only do I have a backup plan, but I've got three, four, five, six backup plans. So, um, you know, if you're headed somewhere and you get to the end of the road at, at four o'clock in the morning, there's a truck there, you better have a backup plan. 
Um, and so from an outfitting guy perspective in general, uh, that has to do with scouting and knowing your area and, you know, knowing all the different ways to get into the area that you want to be in and things like that. So we, uh, we mentioned it social media there for a bit. Um, what, what are some good things and what are some bad things that you see with social media and what are particularly you as the outfitter, you're running in guys on social media all the time that are hitting you up, wanting a guide for you. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. I got in contact with you initially. Sure. Yep. What are what are you seeing that are that are good things and bad things that are, people are putting out there, and I don't some of the dangers of it, I guess. Oh, God, social media is a mess, man. And I'm the worst culprit too. I've been actively <laughs> involved in social media for many years, so I'm not saying I'm. I'm uh, when I'm saying this, I'm speaking about myself in a lot of cases, but social media is a disaster. You may have even noticed I've been a little less active uh, lately. I've been toning my social media use down, um, but it's made the world really, really small and made it really easy to communicate and um, figure out who each other are. All of us um, have all connected via social media. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think it's really dramatically changed things and, and not for the better, uh, as a whole, I think it's, uh, affected hunting and, and going to continue to affect hunting and make the world a, a much smaller place. Um, no, it's affected in a negative way, I should say, but, uh, it's, we're getting a lot of bad press online essentially. So what about the, what about the positive aspects though? I mean, I think that they're there. I think that people get the opportunity to, to see, some of the success that guides and outfitters have that maybe actually does drive some people to be uh, more interested in going outdoors. I mean, you see it a lot and, you know, some of these raffle tag elk or uh, maybe a governor tag bull that somebody kills. I think that actually kind of fuels the fire. There's a little bit of a distaste or jealousy, but people see those and like, man, monsters do exist. That monster came to fruition because of the outfitter, whoever they worked with to get that. I think that's a positive aspect that social media plays. You know, seeing that stuff firsthand, people get the motivation, maybe just to do it yourself, guys. Uh, you know, they see they're like, okay, big animals still exist. I can get it done. Hey, I know right where that guy hunts because I saw his truck parked out in the field. And I'm, you know, I got that same unit, so I'm going to get out there. There, there are positive aspects, I think, on how social media, you know, ties into all of this. So it's not all bad, I would say. No. I, th- I think there's some people that, that look at it in a good light. And there's actually seems to be a big concentration of people that are supportive of guides. It's like you have the couple one-off dudes that get really hostile about it. But then, um, and I see it on social media, it's like it seems to be the same guys that compliment all of the outfitters because they understand it. And maybe they've experienced, maybe they've spotted, maybe they've uh, been on a guided hunt themselves. I mean, I don't know. Uh, sure. But, you know, that, that perspective on it is interesting to me. Yeah. I think it's easy to change minds. Um, um, I've uh, had some of these conversations online and uh, literally offer to just take people out and show them what it's all about. If that's what they think outfitting is, and we're going to go out there and hand someone a big elk, and uh, they're just going to waddle out into the woods and come back with a 400-inch bull. Uh, it's just not like that. Now, there may be places that it is like that, uh, but they're not the places that I hunt or I'm familiar with. They're, our hunters work so hard, and uh, they come out and, you know, a little bit curious about a guy to hunt for the first time, and they come out and do it, and they realize that it's just a really awesome experience hunting with some guys that are that are like hunting with buddies uh, that are just all there to help help see you be successful. 
Um, and I think most guys come out with a really positive taste in their mouth. Now, with those bad apples, leave a lot of bad taste in people's mouths. We get folks uh, coming out of really bad situations, being screwed by outfitters. Uh, happens all the time. There's always bad apples. And so you're going to have those bad situations, uh, whatever, the, whatever they may be. Uh, they're going to happen every single year. So right. you're always gonna have to, we're going to have to overcome that. Uh, the good ones are going to have to end up overcoming that. I want to ask a question, and I um, hate to put you guys on the spot on this because it's not on the agenda, but I want to get Dylan, Cole, Matt. I'm going to start with Dylan. What is, in your opinion, one misconception about guides or outfitters that people assume that is not true? That we have everything figured out, and when a client shows up, and they shoot that animal. They paid their money. They shoot that animal, and that's, you know, it's a black and white deal that they show up. They shoot the biggest thing and they go home and they're just they're paying for inches they're paying for the animal as if it's a super simple situation yeah, i mean there's and a lot more to the not. hunt there's so much work involved with it and so much work from the hunter in in every situation you you spotted and been a part of a ton of hunts with me and, and cole did for years before he started guiding those guys earn every single animal that they've been right. a part of absolutely just because they're writing a check to an outfitter to book a hunt it might be because they don't have the time to scout they might be out of state they might not be familiar with the area they might have waited 20 plus years to draw a certain tag and they want some expertise um if the last time you had an elk tag was 20 years ago you don't know how to hunt elk (laughs) (laughs) or you don't know where to apply right um yeah it depends (laughs) on your perspective on it (laughs) yeah so that there's there's this like concept this idea that the client coming in doesn't earn their animal because I, they're paying for a it. good example of that was like our recent experience with peter man it's like he earned every bit of that he could have stopped right like after he was successful and i just the amount of respect i have for that guy to just continue to experience the hunt and go through it all um and i think that proves the point exactly like what you're talking about where there's a there's a misconception on that cole what do you think um, is one misconception or one thing that people are wrong about when it comes to guides and outfitters? Well, I'm going to kind of, I guess, look at the perspective from like a client coming on the hunt. So maybe not like the public's perspective, but like a client that books a hunt, comes out and hunts with us, um, and might have like a misconception. And that's that, um, you know, as a guide, we're going to do our best to make sure it's successful but that they are going to be given everything, you know, that we're going to wipe their ass for them, carry their trash around. That's not, that's carry, not included in the payment. Carry, carry their, you know, carry water for them, you know, and granted, we'll, you know, we'll help out with the pack, but I've seen, in a, you know, the, my short time going, you know, a couple guys that are like, they want you literally to do every single thing for them. And it touches back on what Dylan says. It's like, you gotta, you gotta work for it a little bit, you know, you gotta, you got to still do your part to get that full experience out of the hunt. Because if you just come into it and you just want, you know, the, the guy to put your gun down on a bipod, line it up in the scope, and then you just pull the trigger, you're going to have a terrible time. And you're not going to enjoy your, your, your hunt and the experience with the guy, you know. Matt, what's your opinion on that? You got a, maybe one common misconception of the way people look at guides and outfitters? Yeah. You probably, you probably have a lot, but just one. A whole, a whole bunch of them. And we, we touched on it earlier. Um, and, uh, I've been fortunate. I've made a comfortable living, uh, hunting full time for, for many years now. Um, but 
I think there's a, there's a misconception about what that takes to, to make a living uh, and do it and do this or potentially do this full time. It's only a handful of guys who do this as a, their full time job. Uh, you can look all all the outfitters around the state and you've got real estate agents and and landscapers and firefighters and things like that. They've all got various flexible type careers uh, and they all guide an outfit on the side. And, and uh, you know, just. If we talk about the cost of a deer hunt and, and paying a guide like we talked about, some of the numbers we've already discussed, uh, and, and add in uh, um, some permits and some legwork and some advertising and, a, and some fuel for some scouting trips and figure out how much is a guy actually makes at the end of each hunt, and then realize how many hunts you have to complete over the course of a fall to make a living that's comparable to pick anyone's living, pick any, any guy we know, whether they're, they're, you know, the air, an air conditioning guy or an accountant or any, anything, any welder, any job that any other job that any of us could have gone and done, um, and compare those numbers. Um, it, it takes, uh, to make a thousand dollars a hunt is, uh, is a, is a rare feat in, in a lot of cases on these public right. land hunts. Right. Um, and so, to, to make six, 50, 60, 70,000 dollars a year and be able to afford a house and have a truck and maybe have a ranger yeah. and have things like you're that. Not, you're not um, officially a guide unless you have a ranger. I don't know if you do right? that, but that's yeah, one of the right, qualifications. Exactly. So those those things cost money. <laughs> and a lot, so a lot of guys uh, in, in most situations will have a secondary job, a secondary career uh, that's, that, that allows them to be flexible where they've got lots of time off in the fall and they can go for a week here, a week there uh, in order to be able to afford to do that. Because if you add up all the numbers that we've discussed and you guide two or three weeks each month for the entire guiding season. Say you, if you got three weeks, that's $4,500 a month um, uh, wages. And if you guide all the way from August, August, September, October, November, December, January, that's six months, uh, you stand to make probably about $25,000 before any of your expenses. I'm rich. And so, and, and that, that's, <laughs> I'm a, rich. that's yep. and in order to, in order to make $25,000 and pull a schedule like I just mentioned off, you're probably going to hunt two or three states and or countries and uh, work for multiple different outfitters because very few guys maintain a schedule like that where they have a full archery deer schedule, archery elk, early elk, all the early rifle hunts, um, you know, things like that uh, all the way into the late seasons. There's very few outfitters that can even provide that amount of work. Right. Yeah. And then. And then you throw on top of that, you know, you're driving back from Mexico and your your tire falls off, and <laughs> now you have to repair your truck. So now you're down to what, like twenty two thousand oh, dollars? Exactly. Falls off or flies off. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really scary, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you guys are right down there in Cartel Land. It was a too, fun man. trip going and getting it, though. So I think you guys are spot on with that. I mean, and you hit the you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, all that stuff before I knew any of you guys were things that I perceived guys and outfitters like negatively i had those misconceptions uh, hank i want to get your opinion on this i've learned a lot hunting with um hunting with dylan hunting with all these other guys you know most i would say the biggest thing for me is having a higher level of confidence in yourself like dylan you've taught me that getting to a spot knowing that what you're seeing isn't what you want to see having the confidence to go somewhere else and do something else, to look somewhere else, to try something else. I, th I think that the common, I think that your, your everyday hunter ignores those opportunities and isn't willing to go a little bit beyond their comfort zone. 
I've met guys that will go to, they'll see one good spot. That's the only spot they hunt. It's like, I saw one good deer here. Little, you know, that deer was shot two years ago. They can sit there and keep hunting that same spot, hoping to see that same deer. <laughs> he's still here. Yeah, he's still here. Hank, what is something that you've learned um, hunting with Dylan, hunting with other people? Uh, what is something you've learned from other guides and outfitters that maybe has changed your perception on something? You know, it's, it's not always about the biggest animal. I've always heard, you know, growing up here and about all these guides, oh, you get a guide, it's going to be the biggest animal you've ever seen, and you're guaranteed a, a kill. It's, it's not that at all. It's way more about the experience and being, you know, out there in the field. Being a people person myself kind of helps out with all that stuff. I think right. every one of us here at this table, Matt, you included, uh, have to be a people person to be able to right. work with people and do this and explore all those, you know, facets of, of the individuality it takes between each person and what they enjoy in the field. No, it makes sense. All right, man, we've covered a lot of stuff. You guys got any closing comments, anything you want to add? Matt, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you want to hit? Um, no, not a whole bunch other, other than there's a lot more to it than just killing stuff and guiding, uh, and, and, and guiding the actual hunts and being in the field. I think a lot of guys don't understand that. I've had some guys work for me in the past years and years ago. They don't work for me anymore and haven't, uh, since this particular experience, but guys that, uh, said, we're here to kill stuff, not do dishes. Um, and, uh, they were, they were to guide and wanted to spot and scout but but basically we're above lacking that like customer service part right lacking that customer service and and and, and you know tents and, and and getting camps up and cleaning camps and maintaining camps throughout and keeping dishes and and dining areas all clean throughout the course of an entire hunt you're there to manage the hunt so hunting is a huge part of that and and your time in the field and, and confidence in the field uh you know is a is, is huge part of that but um so much more that goes to it just all the preparation beforehand and maintaining keeping a hunt running smoothly um start to finish uh, all the way from the till the guy is on his way out or meets at the process or whatever the case may be so there's, there's a lot more to it than just getting out there and killing things. right absolutely yeah i know and and matt kind of just to to piggyback on that um being a young buck myself you know i'm so grateful that that you gave me the opportunity to come in and work alongside you um, but say there's some other, you know, younger hunters that, you know, and they're in low twenties, mid twenties, um, even you know, older guys, but they want to maybe get into that. What is something as an outfitter that like you are looking for, like traits that you are looking for um, when you're hiring a guider? You know, you want to bring someone alongside of you to to guide a hunt. Well, it's it boil it boils down to to uh, relatable customer service, an or customer service oriented type person. And, uh, and of course, in their field abilities, that would, in my opinion, come secondary in, in a lot of cases. People know, you have to know how to manage people and handle people. You're going to hunt with all sorts of people, all sorts of different types of people. Right. Uh, in the course of a season, you're going to hunt with kids and, and older folks and, and, and marathon runners and folks that are 150 pounds overweight, uh, back to back to back to back. And you've got to be able to adjust, adapt and adjust and, and carry on throughout the entire season. Uh, one week, you might not be able to Leave, get more than 200 yards from a vehicle uh the next week the guy might want to just run mountain ridges the entire time hmm. um and so uh you've, and you've got to adjust and adapt to what the client's needs are and, um and so i look for guys that, that are adaptable and not really set in their ways like well i hike to the top of the mountain every morning well that may not work in a lot of cases 
Uh, that may be your strategy for how you hunt with your couple buddies. Um, but in an outfitting situation, you, you've got to adapt You've got because you've got to work with the hunter. You can't, uh, nothing's happened until that hunter is there with his rifle. So right. no matter how many mountains you can climb and how great a shape you're in, uh, it's completely irrelevant. It all boils down to the client. Now, on that same note, you've got to be in that, that shape, that hunting condition, uh, because you're going to get marathon runner type uh, trail runner guys that show up. <laughs> and, you, and you've got to lead the way still. At no point in time, in my opinion, should a guide be following this hunter uh, unless you're stalking in on a archery critter or something that's probably why yeah. i don't that's why i don't have my license or anything yet it's like man i can't keep up <laughs> I'm in the so bag. You, hey man you want to carry my rifle yeah. for me real quick I'll be in the hunt. You're, you know you're responsible for leading the way so yeah. <laughs> uh if you're huffing and puffing and wheezing and, and and your client's like well come on let's go the elk are up ahead of us and he's trying to go and you can't keep up that that's the that'd be an yeah. absolute worst case scenario that would so be embarrassing <laughs> yeah it'd be completely embarrassing so uh not only do you have to be in better shape than anyone you even may encounter <laughs> you know uh you know have to get keep yourself in enough in good enough shape that no matter who you could potentially hunt with some random person going to show up next week you already know that you are you need to already know that you're going to be waiting for them uh, you know and uh, and have the ability to do that where the next person may show up and you're just going to cautiously be escorting them a quarter mile from the truck because that's all they're physically capable of doing and so your hunts are going to vary so much that Guys have got to have that really customer ser- customer service oriented personality, uh, and got to be very adaptable, and then have to have lots of time in the field. And you guys touched on it earlier. I think a lot of that comes from um, hunting with your friends and things like that. But volunteering up some of your time to go work with an outfitter and go be a spotter um, uh, that that helps a lot of outfitters in some cases. Uh, uh, they're taking a little bit of a risk. They don't know who they have coming into camp. Um, but, uh, in some cases, yeah, worst case uh, like scenario, mentioned, yeah, worst case know. scenario, somebody comes in there just to volunteer and then before you know it, they're hunting that stuff, they're like, Oh, thanks for showing me this area. I appreciate that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that that, that can deal. happen. That, that's yeah, for sure. But, uh, um, that's how you're going to get in the door with an outfit. Yeah. You don't, you're going to end up volunteering some of your time for free, um, to that outfitter in most cases, um, to show up and prove that you can show up. Um, and perform and, and uh, uh, help manage a camp and, and help get animals on the ground and get them taken care of. And if you can step up and, and be impressive in that situation, and you're going to end up working for that outfit. Yeah, so. and, and you probably don't want to be the guide either that uh, gets a, a early September archery rut hunt does not a bugle. So don't be that guy. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I've watched it happen. I've watched it happen a couple times in the last few years that guys are guiding archery elk hunters. Uh, and they haven't actually archery elk hunted themselves. Uh, and it's a sad, sad situation. You guys are paying $5,000 and $6,000 to a big name outfitter. And they should go up with a guy who not only can't actually run a, a breed or an elk call himself, but has never actually oh, had a bull at 20 yards. Um, we've got outfitters like that operating all over the state right now. So we've got a Unreal. bunch of those type of situations. Um, yeah, so I guess you get buyer beware, right? I mean, if you're somebody buy, out there, buyer beware. Yeah, absolutely. So do your homework on the on the company that you're gonna want to book a hunt with. Do your homework on. It's just like anything else, right? I mean, in a profession, yeah. would you would you purchase something that you didn't understand or you didn't trust? Like, make sure who you were buying into, you can talk with. Peter Peter brought that up with you. I was actually asking him. I said, "Hey, man, how did you kind of end up out here?" He said, "I like the way Dylan talked to me. I just liked the way we had conversations. I liked how we related." But he did his homework. That in, that individual person made sure. He said, I, "You know what? I have an investment. I want to make sure I'm making a sound investment." And I think guys that um, are looking to book a hunt should probably consider, you know, 
well, not probably, they should very seriously consider who they are going to book that hunt with and what they're going to get out of it. And oftentimes, like they might see, you know, they might be booking a hunt with somebody that they see online thinking they're going to get that person and then hey maybe it's a different guy that they show up with make sure you ask those questions make sure you have a good understanding of who's going to be there and make sure you understand what the process is going to be like um dylan you got any closing comments for the show or anything else that you want to add i think we covered a lot of awesome stuff um it's it's just like any other business like you wouldn't want the dude coming in to frame your house that didn't have any experience you would want to check his credentials, <laughs> you, right? You'd, you'd want to know that they knew what they were doing and they were, you know, with a solid company and had a good reputation. And um, just, I mean, if you wouldn't pay, well, maybe some people would pay $300 <laughs> to have your deer taxidermied and expect it to turn out good. Um, that's unrealistic. You know, if, if the price is... turnover t- time on one of those deer? Two weeks? Probably. <laughs> uh, if the price is too good... Uh, you know, this, be be aware of the situation, yeah. what you're getting yourself into. Uh, you get what you pay for with anything, too. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. My, my last remark for the, the guides is um, if you are a guide or an outfitter, just, you know, make sure you take good field photos. Oh, oh yeah. God. It's huge. <laughs> How did we not hit that? Seriously, that's my biggest pet peeve. Let's talk about oh. that for a second. It, it, five, Please. ten minutes. So that's actually, that's another thing that I learned, like that, and I think a lot of guys, you know, booking, come in and new hunters, you, 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 you get that animal on the ground and you, you have to take the time to display that beautiful animal, that life you just took. You almost owe it the respect of the, everything that animal lived up to. No, almost. You do. Well, yeah, you do. Well, you get what I'm saying. What does it take to take a good picture a good of the camera? Well, not literally, but I mean, what kind of things, like we joke and we say, all right, we're going to get Bubba Jr.'s landscape ready, like making sure the plants are out of the way, making sure the tongue's tucked. Who, who wants to jump on this? Field pictures are important. Go ahead. I was going to say, let Matt do that. He's got like a, a great grocery list of things. Like Matt, you got, you got a checklist or what? i list a few times in the past. I've, I've actually written a list out a few different times in the past. Oh, God. And even have a list, uh, a guideline list for our guides uh, in order to prevent bad pictures from happening so um it's it's all sunlight and angles uh things like cocked heads eyes have got to be level um there's a there's a i go on and on there's so many different things but uh probably blood's my biggest pet peeve uh we're in the business of killing there's no there's no getting around that so there's no 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 pussyfooting around the fact that we're out there killing animals and putting holes in them and they're bleeding out um I just don't think that that's something that the hunting industry needs to play on. It doesn't help us at all in any way, shape, or form. And uh, so I'm looking around my office right now at, at literally hundreds upon hundreds of pictures just lining the walls, uh, and I don't see any blood in any of the pictures that I have displayed right. uh, on my walls here. And uh, it's distasteful to me. It doesn't respect the animal. It doesn't do the animal justice. And, uh, and it doesn't take much to get around. I've heard all the excuses online. Well, I'm in a hurry to get my animal field dressed. Well, all of us are. Every single yeah, sure. around here, uh, we ate. Somebody ate every single one of the animals on the, the pictures on my, my wall here, um, and uh, they were all field dressed in a very a very timely manner. Uh, we're, we're what it takes to take pictures is a cell phone and two or three minutes of, of paying attention. Yeah. And so in the time you're usually just standing over a deer and BSing, you can have a photo session done. 
Right. Absolutely. Uh, if you if you know the basics, if you know things about keeping some sunlight on people's faces and, and on the animal, and keeping that head level and propped up, and and doing whatever you can to eliminate the blood in the photograph and tuck the tongues in and things like that, I've gone so far as to carry dental sutures to sew mouths together, to seal mouths up. Um, and uh, taking extreme measures to take pictures and, and even realize that a lot of that's not necessary. I can always get around it. I, I can make a great picture out of almost any situation uh, in some, whether it's heavy, dark timber or out on the plains, you know? Right. Um, even just recently on, on the bear that I shot, we waited for 30 minutes before, and we weren't in any concern about temperatures or anything with the animal. We waited for 30 minutes for some shadows to move. Because yeah. it was impractical to move the animal, and we wanted to take better photos. We waited for some shadows to move, waited for the sunlight to change. And it, you can do great photos with a cell phone. I, I now have a couple of cameras that I, that I keep because the image quality is it's so superior to having, having sure. a cell phone, especially for stuff yeah. that an outfitter is going to put on a website later. Um, no, and we use all real cameras as well. I was just saying, the bottom line is it takes three minutes in a cell phone, and you can you can pull it off. You can sure. uh, and have in, in that pictures. three to ten minutes, you, you can take digital pictures are free. You take fifty, take a hundred, right. and you're gonna like two of them at the end of it. Hank, you got any closing comments that you want to add, or anything you want to add to the end of the show? Yeah, guys, just get out there, learn, and have fun. That's what it comes down to. You know, you're out there whether you're by yourself, you're with your buddy. Get out there, do everything that you're that you're thinking about doing. You want to go to that next ridge, do it, man. Get out there, explore, have fun, and enjoy yourself, period. That's the end yeah, of it. Find some people to hunt with, right? Hey, uh, Matt, I know you said you've slowed down a little bit on social media, but why don't you go ahead and give our listeners uh, some information on where they can find more about you and Borderland Adventures. Sure. You can find us online at borderlandadventures.com, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram, or you can find me, Matt Woodward, on Facebook as well. Very good. Uh, Matt, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us this evening and then gracing us with your presence. Really want to wish you the best of luck this season, and hopefully you know you get out there with your son and really get that full experience on the Bighorn Sheep Tag. And best of luck with all the clients and everything that you're doing this year, man. Get it done and have a great time. Be safe. Thank you, Jen, so much. It was a pleasure. No problem. Thank you, Matt. Later, dude. Take just, care, guys. Just want to thank everybody for listening this evening. If you liked the episode, you like the content, go ahead and leave a like or a comment. Even better yet, uh, tell one of your friends and share the podcast. Other than that, have a great night. Thanks for listening.